I have a two-year-old now, um, and, you know, I think that um, the mandate becomes even stronger um, as I think about the next generation. Um, I want to make sure that wherever she ends up living is livable, right? It, like she can stay safe and resilient um, where wherever her future leads her. Um, and that means making the investments and taking the action now. Welcome to Wild Talk. Welcome to Wild Talk. Welcome to Wild Talk. Welcome to Wild Talk. Let's head outside. Janie Bavishi is the director of the New York City Mayor's Office of Resiliency, overseeing a $20 billion plan to prepare New York City for the impacts of climate change. This includes the 520 miles of the city's coastline, but as we saw during the recent storms, every neighborhood in the city is vulnerable to the extreme weather caused by global warming. Hurricane Ida made landfall in New Orleans and moved up the East Coast, as many hurricanes do. But climate change, as predicted, is making big rainstorms bigger. And when Ida reached New York on the evening of September 1st, it dumped more than three inches of rain on the city in a single hour, overwhelming drainage systems and causing catastrophic flooding across the region. At least 38 people died, the worst natural disaster to strike the area since Superstorm Sandy in 2012. Sandy was a defining event for the city's resiliency efforts. And Janie wanted us to see Edgemere an oceanfront community on the Rockaway Peninsula not far from JFK Airport in Queens. The Rockaways were hit hard by Hurricane Sandy in 2012, and Edgemere, whose very name means at the sea's edge, is among the communities still grappling with the hard choices presented by changing weather and rising sea levels. But there were signs of hope and life. We strolled with Janie along Edgemere's newly fortified section of boardwalk near Beach 45th Street, before heading inland to the bay side of the peninsula. The wind was high, and the dunes on that section of beach were closed, so as not to disturb the breeding season of the migratory piping plovers and other nesting endangered species. So, where did you bring us today? In this beautiful spot on the beach, where are we? Yeah, we're on the Rockaway Peninsula. We're actually right here on Rockaway Beach. Um, this is a community, the community that's behind Rockaway Beach was um, really devastated by Hurricane Sandy. Um, the storm surge um, hit this beach pretty hard. Um, we're actually standing on a rebuilt Rockaway boardwalk, but this boardwalk prior to Sandy was a wooden boardwalk. And the storm surge actually picked up the boardwalk and threw it into the community behind it. Um, so we've rebuilt this Rockaway boardwalk as a coastal protection measure. You, you'll notice that this is a concrete boardwalk now, and it um, has steel pilings that it's built upon. Um, so this is actually one of the multiple lines of defense on this beach. So just um, uh, in, in front of the boardwalk here, um, we're looking at a, a sand dune that was built right after Sandy. Um, we're actually working with the Army Corps of Engineers to reinforce this sand dune with rock and steel. Um, we're putting new sand on the beach just to widen the beach, and that will create another measure of protection. Um, and then we're building um, new rock jetties, um, or groins as we like to call them um, in coastal protection speak, um, that will help to keep the sand in place um, so that we can slow down the pace of coastal erosion. And so you worked um, in New Orleans after Katrina. You've done some work in Hawaii. What is different from place to place and what patterns are, are consistent? It's a great question. You know, I've been in different kinds of roles in all these different places, but I would say that the cities that are furthest ahead on uh, preparing for the impacts of climate change in this country are the cities that have recently experienced disasters. And it's because of this dynamic that federal dollars for resilience work only flow after a disaster, which is an inherently, it's a very reactive way of preparing for these challenges that we know are coming and should be taking proactive action on. Um, so places like Honolulu, which is a place that I've lived and worked, um, you know, they know that um, they are going to experience um, really severe impacts of sea level rise and, and potential coastal storms um, and have done some great planning for it. But they still have a long way to go to unlock the dollars that they need to actually build projects um, and, and take more proactive steps. Whereas New York and New Orleans have invested a lot of money into coastal protection in particular. Mm -hmm. That's a 
interesting dynamic. <laughs> it's almost an oxymoron to sort of think of reactive, uh, uh, you know, prevention there. Um, and and you actually were at the at the federal level thinking about these issues um, with the Obama administration, right? So what is uh, what does it look like at at not just this this uh, scale of a city, but when you're thinking about resiliency from from a national standpoint? Yeah, I think the federal government has a really important role to play in creating the enabling environment for resiliency. Now, that might sound jargony, but what I mean by that is we really need to start thinking about the impacts of climate change in every decision that the government makes. Um, these projects that we're talking about, you know, the, these adaptation and resilience projects, they're really expensive. So um, this project here in the Rockaways um, is a, a project that's over $300 million. Um, we are building another project in the on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. It's a 2.5 mile coastal protection project. It'll protect 110,000 people. It's called East Side Coastal Resiliency. It's a $1.45 billion project, right? And keep in in mind that New York City has 520 miles of coastline. So these are hundreds of millions of dollars that are going into coastal protection projects a new class of infrastructure for New York City. Um, and, and New York City is just one municipality in, right, um, right. You know, in the entire country. So um, we, need to, we need to advance these kinds of projects, but we also need to just build smarter all across the board. Every new housing development, every infrastructure project, you know, every bridge, every, every, uh, uh, every runway we build at an airport needs to, be think, it needs to be built with climate change in mind and the impacts of climate change in mind. And I think that the federal government can play a really important role in that, right? Making sure that it's not just FEMA grants that are uh, incentivizing resilience action. Is that the primary way they get uh, distributed today, the FEMA grants? It's FEMA and, and HUD. Um, okay. But it's all it's post-disaster funding, right? Okay. It's it's these agencies that, that are really funding. involved in post-disaster funding. But every every Department of Transportation grant should also be accounting for climate change, right? Every Department of Energy grant should be accounting for climate change. Once we start baking it in, in that way, really mainstreaming accounting for climate impacts, then we'll start avoiding things like what we saw in Texas this winter, right? Like we need to be designing our energy grid with climate change in mind. So this is actually uh, an action that we have taken in New York City. Um, just last month, we uh, passed a local mandate to require um, a consideration of climate impacts across our entire $90 billion capital portfolio. Wow. So this means that everything that's built with city capital dollars, every infrastructure project, every buildings project will be designed with climate change in mind. I think the federal government has enormous opportunity to, cr to, to create these incentives, right? To, to essentially require that states and cities and tribes and territories are planning for climate change across everything that they're doing. They also have the opportunity to incentivize action on these issues pre-disaster, right? Let's create incentives so that states and cities are not waiting for the federal government to bail them out after a disaster, but rather, um, you know, improving their emergency protocols, um, thinking about climate change in their land use decisions and in their uh, design and construction decisions before a disaster. And the federal government can provide the necessary funding to actually enable states and cities to do that. Um, How much of that is, is, is transferable versus really need to be specific to the city, right? I mean, it's, what are the lessons that, that are transferable from, these, from city to city here? Yeah, you, you make a good point. I mean, even in New York City, there, you know, we have a hundred uh, coastal neighborhoods, and I would say the um, strategies we're using to prepare each of those coastal neighborhoods is, is they're as diverse as the neighborhoods themselves, right? So, so um, uh, you make a good point. All of this is incredibly local, um, but I, I do think that the like in terms of the data, for example, um, you know, keep in mind the federal government is not just a bunch of agencies that work in D.C. They have extension services, they have regional offices, they are actually in these communities that um, need to really be preparing for climate change. So um, there is a lot of capacity that's already there that, that can be utilized to um, really be a catalyst for cities to, to get ahead of these challenges and, and at least get started. So is that something we do with other sort of uh, coastal cities or do you, is there a, a way cities get together and sort of share this knowledge already? 
There are a lot of networks that already exist. Um, you know, uh, there, there used to be the 100 Resilient Cities Network that the Rockefeller Foundation sponsored. Um, that spun off into um, what's being called the Resilient Cities Network now. Um, I'm on a WhatsApp group with chief resilience officers all <laughs> over the country, and we literally, you know, we, we, we text each other all the time about, like, what's working? Here's a question I have. Does Do any of you have some insights that might help me solve this problem? Um, and, and it's great to have that kind of real-time exchange. Um, and we have engaged in much deeper partnerships with certain cities. So for example, you know, we're ahead on coastal resiliency because Sandy was a coastal storm, right? And, um, and it prompted us to really think about our coastal vulnerabilities to future Sandy-like storms, hurricanes. Um, Copenhagen in 2011 had a major rain event, um, and you know they uh, they have been implementing many strategies to protect their communities from precipitation. Um, New York City is also vulnerable to precipitation impacts, and you know it's notable that um, of course both hurricanes, um, if they're surge events and and rain, they both cause flooding. But um, often flood rain rain based flooding can affect inland communities, and those are communities that are not quite as prepared for flood events in the same way that coastal communities are. Um, and so um, there and there are different strategies, of course, that you can you have to use to, to protect communities from both kinds of flooding. And so we've created this partnership with Copenhagen where um, we took a, a delegation from New York City there to learn from the strategies they've implemented. They've come here and we've shown them some of the coastal projects that we're building. Um, and we're in constant partnership with each other. How do you get someone, a lawmaker in Albany or, or someone in the Great Plains, someone who hasn't felt the effects or a community that isn't, they're sort of like, well, we're on high ground, we're, we'll be fine. How do you get them to care about and invest in the more vulnerable places? Yeah, I mean, one thing to keep in mind is that we're not just preparing for coastal events. This is not just a coastal problem. Climate change is bringing... Um, certainly more coastal storms and sea level rise, and we're a city of 520 miles of coastline, so that's something that we're very concerned about. But it's also going to mean um, more intense heat waves, you know, more days above 90 degrees. Um, and it's going to bring more rain, which is going to affect inland communities. Um, in the Midwest, this means wildfires and drought, right? And, and certainly in the West Coast states, we've, we've seen that. Um, so, so I would say that Climate change is bringing all kinds of impacts, and um, Mother Nature doesn't recognize blue states versus red states. I mean, I think that there's actually um, an opportunity to to take bipartisan action on these issues because at the local level, you know, when I was at the White House, I, I actually facilitated a panel on resilient building code with my predecessor in New York City and the mayor of Fairhope, Alabama. And they were speaking the same language, right? Because they, they actually were dealing with so many similar challenges. So you don't have to look far to see that these disasters are, are intensifying, they're becoming more frequent, um, and they're affecting a really broad swath of our population, right, in one way or another. Um, so I hope that the data and the images that we see on TV speak for themselves. I mean, um, I, uh, 2020 was the most active hurricane season on record, Atlantic hurricane season on record. It was the second hottest year on record, only a hundredth of a degree cooler than 2016, which was the hottest year on record. And we're, I think we're just going to see those numbers um, uh, keep climbing, unfortunately. Right. Yeah, and it seems like with the pandemic... This sense of the, the delicateness and the interconnectedness, maybe that's a way where people who are in Iowa haven't felt a big, a big event yet is, are feeling it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, it was the tsunami in Japan that, like, led to no black Camrys in the, <laughs> um, in the supply chain for a while. It, it just speaks to the interconnectedness of, of our um, global supply chain and, and, um, and global systems more generally. Right. You also were making this connection. Uh, what are these birds, Matt? I think they're the piping plovers. It's a nesting the season. Plover? Yeah. Oh, that might have been a nesting dispute we overheard. Are they part of Because the beach right now is, is, you're not allowed on the beach, and there's some signage saying it's the turn nesting season? Yeah, it, it's a nesting season for the plovers, which is why you're not allowed on the beach. For this interview, Jay and I asked our producer, Matt Dellinger, to tag along. 
As a journalist, Matt has written extensively on how infrastructure affects communities. He reported on urban planning work in Mississippi following Hurricane Katrina. As an infrastructure nerd, Matt's job was to help us navigate the wonky details, but also to connect them to real life. So to unpack resiliency a little bit, like uh, I know some of it is building, some of it's fortress building. Some of it is planning for what we'll do when the disaster comes, and some of it is, you know, managed retreat and sort of let's not build there anymore. Yeah. How much, to what, to, you know, how do you kind of uh, decide where in the mix to be at a given moment in time? Yeah, those are very hard questions. Um, I, I mean, I, I think that... In general, a lot of the work that we've undertaken in New York City so far has been about how do we protect in place, right? Like, how do we make these communities that we inhabit now safer, given what we know is coming? Um, But there are already communities in the city that are experiencing chronic tidal flooding, which means, you know, every every month (laughs) during a full moon, um, there will be... um, There could be flooding in the community just from regular high tides uh, due to sea level rise. Um, And so we've started um, in those communities with a lot of community engagement, uh, limiting density. Um, So essentially saying that we're not going to make these communities any more dense than they are now. Um, But I think there's still a big open question about, you know, where do we actually start saying we need to move? And when we go to Edgemere, one of the reasons we wanted to go over there was um, because as part of the community planning process there, we actually, the community decided that there was a swath of homes in an area that is really vulnerable to wave action um, where it didn't make sense to rebuild. So after Sandy, the only build it, the city sponsored this build it back program to rebuild homes that were devastated by Sandy and the only build it back strategy that was offered there was relocation. So in those in those in that swath of land that's really vulnerable to wave action, um, residents had the option to relocate and receive assistance to do that um, to somewhere else in the neighborhood but couldn't rebuild in place. I would say the other challenge here is that the city doesn't currently have a f- have funding in place to facilitate um, relocating people during blue sky times, um, meaning like in, in the absence of a disaster. So if, um, if there's a disaster, then again, federal funds would be triggered and we could use those federal funds for buyouts. Um, I would say in general, after disasters, when people want things to go back to normal as quickly as possible, they don't want to move, they want to go back to their homes, go back to their communities, they want, they want things to be normal. Um, and so it's really a bad time to be starting those conversations. Um, we've seen it, we saw it in New York, we've seen it in New Orleans, we've seen it in other communities across the country. And so really where, where we'd like to get to is a place where we're engaging communities about their risks ahead of time. Um, and, and, and really like talking to individual homeowners about their risk tolerance. So we want to be able to engage communities in those conversations so that then when buyout programs are available, they've already thought about you know, what, what they would want to do, and they're not just starting to think about those things for the first time. But, but they're really complicated decisions, and it's about an individual's risk tolerance, but it's also oftentimes what, their na- what people's neighbors are going to do, right? And so, um, so we need to be having those conversations at different levels. Um, and then the other thing I'll say about retreat, because it is so complicated, is that how do we think about retreat in a city with an affordable housing crisis, <laughs> right? And, and right, so ultimately, right. this is really a housing issue. So, you know, you'll hear environmentalists really pushing the city on retreat, um, saying we need to return this land to its natural state. It needs to become, you know, it needs to be returned to natural wetlands. Okay, fair enough. but. But ultimately, this is a housing issue because we also need to figure out where, where and how we facilitate moves for, for these folks who, you know, probably even at market rate can't use that money to, to buy another home in another part of the city. Right. Um, 
Uh, oh, just priced out. That, that's, yeah, that's no a, way to maintain that community even if you wanted to. Exactly. And so we've really been trying to reframe the issue as housing mobility. We talk a lot about housing stability. And I think in the face of climate change, we also need to think about equitably um, creating programs that allow for housing mobility. So wait, um, you said housing mobility, not stability. What's well, the we difference talk a there? lot about housing stability, right? And the housing, it's still about stability, I suppose. We still want, um, you know, access to safe, affordable homes, but understanding that it may not be in the neighborhoods where, um, where people had safe and affordable homes in the first place. I Got mean, there's, there's this precedent in the city, right, of Robert Moses using eminent domain to take people's homes and slice neighborhoods in half in the Bronx. And obviously, there's a lot of people who don't want to repeat that. But is it that different that if you're talking about there's infrastructure that needs to be in place and some people need to move, but you need to do that in an equitable way, is what you're saying. Yeah. In a way that is not forced, not That's using right. eminent domain. Choice is going to be really important to all of this. We want people to have a choice about whether or not they want to move. And that's why I said, like, ultimately, it's about engagement at different levels, right? Like, making people aware of their climate risk, but really sort of pushing people to engage in their individual risk tolerance while having community conversations so people can understand what their neighbors are thinking, what their neighbors are going to do, what plans are in place for mitigating those risks at a neighborhood scale and what the limits of those plans might be ultimately. Sort of a slow motion version of when there's a hurricane and you say there's an evacuation, but some people stay and tape their windows and their personal risk tolerance is higher and they sort of want to stay and have a party. That's a great example, yeah. So, so where are we walking to? So we are actually just walking down the Rockway Boardwalk here. Um, these groins that you see here, these rock jetties are all new. Um, and they were oh, just really? completed. Yeah, they were just you, completed with this recent Army Corps project. That, you wouldn't um, think they were brand new. They look sort of really embedded as part of the landscape right now. Yeah, well, the, these are new. I uh, <laughs> um, love what they've done with the park. It's, it's fabulous. They've really blended it so elegantly into the sand there. It's a show called Coastal Makeover, you know. Where they come in before and oh, I can't believe it. Exactly. Um, yeah, we, we announced the um, start of this construction actually on the Sandy anniversary last year. Um, and this is the area where they started. Um, and we had these very dramatic, this would have been perfect for the Coastal Makeover show. They had this, we had these very dramatic images of like big construction machinery, like in the water, picking up big boulders and throwing them into place. And, and so, uh, yeah, so these are, these are new rock jetties that are here. Um, uh, and they've reinforced the dune um, in this area. So um, here, this is just an example of like the multiple layers of protection that we're trying to, you know, provide for this community. Awesome. So Biden's infrastructure plan, you know, physical infrastructure, but also, um, you know, large expanded definition of what infrastructure is. And as part of Earth Day, you know, the goal to cut emissions, uh, uh, carbon emissions in the U.S. in half by 2030 feels like a really big moment. Is, is this a real pivot? Is, are we at this turning moment? Is it, you know, what does it mean and how does that relate to your work? Um, well, the work to cut carbon emissions is incredibly important to my work pre to prepare for the impacts of climate change because we absolutely need to slow the rate of climate change, otherwise there is no way to keep up, right? Like, we, we can only prepare our communities for the impacts of climate change to a certain point, um, but we have to slow the rate so that, um, so that we're not continuing to lock in these changes. Um, but I will say that, you know, I think ultimately adaptation and resilience are also essential forms of climate action. Um, and, you know, we, we, we know that there are impacts of climate change that we're not going to be able to avoid. And we really need the federal government to step up in uh, helping states and cities prepare for them. So some form of hope for the best plan for the worst. We need a little more planning for the worst. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's one way to think of it. Or being sure. proactive, as you were saying. Being before, proactive right? is how I like to think of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've noticed a shift in language and the dialogue. You know, I'd say even five years ago, it was like, if, you know, or, or, or prevent. And now it's all, it feels like the language here, has shifted right? to mitigation yeah. 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 and slowing. Not, not stopping, just slowing and mitigating. Right. I mean, that's in a relatively a few years, right? Yeah, that, that's true. 
Well, in a car you have brakes and airbags and and, and a, a gas pedal, yeah. right? And you have sprinklers in the building, but you also have a fire department. I mean, there's different levels of like like the coastline here. Like there's different kind of layers of protection, I guess. Right. Um, let's get off here and walk over to the base side. Um, yeah, let me give you a little background. So Edgemere is um, a community that experiences kind of regular tidal flooding and ponding, but it's also a community that has experienced some blight. Um, there's a, a major public housing development that we'll walk by and, um, and you'll see, um, and I think there's some sort of disconnectedness between public housing residents and, and other residents in the community. Um, there is also just, you know, some concerns about lack of retail space and, and retail activity and, um, and you know, the, uh, the community out here in the Rockaways is, is kind of disconnected from the center of the city and the transportation can be um, infrequent and, and sometimes unreliable. So these are, we uh, started a planning process with this community realizing that um, that there are climate challenges that this community needs to solve for, but also that there are other challenges that are just affecting quality of life. And we wanted to talk about them with residents holistically. That's that connection between the climate change and the social justice work, right? Exactly, right. So, um, yeah, and recognizing that also the investments we can make in adapting the community for the effects of climate change can also in some ways help to solve other problems, right? So um, uh, the Eastside Coastal Resiliency Project, which I think I mentioned before, it's a flood protection project, but we, I mean, we could have just built a flood wall to keep the water out. Instead, we um, also are revitalizing East River Park, um, which is a park that the community really loves, but wanted to see some changes. Um, around and, and we're improving waterfront access um, to the park. So, you know, it, it's providing these other benefits to the community. Um, similarly, here in Edgemere is a resiliency project in Bayswater Park. Um, it's going to protect the community from kind of lower level flooding, not another Hurricane Sandy, but um, less intense storms, but more frequent storms. Um, but it will also create rec recreational amenities for the community that. Um, that they, you know, that the community really wanted. Um, we have an opportunity as we, as we engage in these in these planning processes to um, really think about how we improve quality of life generally. So, where, can you just uh, orient us in terms of where you your office sits in the governmental organization, how you relate to the other agencies? Yeah, sure. So. Um, so, you know, I lead the Mayor's Office of Climate Resiliency. We're about a 30-person staff, um, incredibly interdisciplinary. So we have lawyers and planners and engineers, um, communications experts. Um, and we work with just about every agency in the city government. So we, we sit in the Mayor's Office and, and um, work across... Um, you know, the whole city government, we work with the Parks Department, we work with the Economic Development Corporation, we work with the Public Housing Agency, um, we work with the Department of Health and the Department of Transportation and the Department of Environmental Protection and the Housing Department. And the, I, I think that's how it should be, right? We need to build a capacity across the entire city government to be thinking about the impacts of climate change across their mission, across their programs, across their operations, you know, thinking about it in the design and construction of their own facilities and assets. Um, and so um, uh, I think that our job in many ways is to be kind of organizational change makers, um, except the organization is the city of New York, so it's a very large organization, and it's gonna take time, um, but, but that's part of what we're doing as we actually advance projects um, to protect New York City communities. Can you tell me a little bit about the, the My Buddy uh, system? That was really compelling. I was listening to you describe that on a podcast. Yeah, Be A Buddy. Um, Be A Buddy. 
So uh, I get very possessive. I was like, what about with my buddy? <laughs> my buddy was a doll in the eighties. Okay, that's, that's <laughs> really popular and hard to come by. Yeah. And buddy. also had a really uh, catchy jingle, like I can hear in my head now. <laughs> Bia Buddy is more action oriented. I like that. Um, so Bia Buddy is a program that's part of our response to extreme heat. Um, so before actually I describe Bia Buddy, I want to describe how our extreme heat strategy just for a second because I think it's interesting and I'm really proud of it. It's a hot topic. <laughs> it is a hot topic, uh, no pun intended, right? Um, so, um, so we launched a, an extreme heat resiliency strategy in 2017 called Cool Neighborhoods NYC, and it um, outlines a whole bunch of things we're doing. Uh, both in terms of changing the physical characteristics of neighborhoods um, to make them cooler, um, but also to uh, also investing in programs that help people stay more connected. So we're essentially looking out for the most vulnerable uh, people in our communities on extremely hot days. Um, and so uh, Be a Buddy is one of those programs that fits in the latter bucket. Um, it's a program to foster social cohesion, and what I mean by that is it's just based on the basic tenet of neighbors helping neighbors. So um, we are essentially, the city is working with community-based organizations in some of the most heat vulnerable communities in the city. Um, we are identifying some of the most vulnerable residents. We know that heat is a silent killer. It often affects people inside their homes, uh, people who either don't have an air conditioner or can't afford to turn their air conditioner on. And it's often seniors, um, the elderly, uh, and, and, and chronically disabled members of our community. And so we're identifying who those people are um, and then connecting them with volunteers who can check in on them on extremely hot days. But we're trying to foster those relationships ahead of time um, when it's not hot outside so we can activate those networks on extremely hot days. What's interesting about Be A Buddy is that we actually found out that we activated more times during, activated the network more times during COVID than we ever have before. Hmm. Um, oh, yeah, because you could use it for the same thing. Exactly. So it really kind of goes to show that, you know, we th there are ways to, the, the investments and the programs and the systems we're creating to respond to climate change can actually help prepare our communities for a whole range of shocks and stresses, not just climate hazards. But um, the other thing about heat that's really interesting is that, you know, and this is how we bring equity into our work as well, we um, created this heat vulnerability index that overlays the physical characteristics of heat risk, um, things like density and lack of vegetation with the mm. social indicators of heat risk, so things like uh, race and poverty and the prevalence of AC usage. And, right. um, and actually, you know, put them all on the same map. And it's interesting, like the neighborhoods that light up are South Bronx, Northern Manhattan, and uh, Central Brooklyn. So that's where we're investing the dollars that we have to promote heat resiliency. And we're doing things like plant street trees, we're painting rooftops white um, through a great program called Cool Roofs. Basically, we're, um, we're painting rooftops white to increase reflective surfaces in the city, but it brings the building temperatures down and it reduces the need for AC, so. Um, really, like just painting it white is gonna yeah. get you a cooler building overall? That's incredible. Yeah, and it reduces the need for AC, so it brings your energy bill down, but it's also a job creation program. We're training workers to do this, these roof coatings and then helping to facilitate their um, you know, their progression into other construction jobs after the program. So it's just a, it's a great sustainability, equity, and resiliency program. And we're targeting these roof coatings in the most heat vulnerable areas. Um, because when you actually start clustering these, these uh, roof coatings um, in the most, in, 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 in geographic proximity and close to each other, they have the impact of actually bringing down ambient temperatures. So you're, the actual, the neighborhood becomes cooler just by increasing wow. reflective surfaces. I was thinking when you were talking about resilient communities and, and being proactive and everything, there's a little bit of a parallel health-wise. I mean, we're learning that basically good overall health was a pretty good yeah. protector against COVID. Right. And so many of the same principles are in place. If you have a good basic baseline of, of health, then that helps you in, the, in, in an extreme circumstance. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I was but it's gonna... not just the health of an individual, it's also the health of a community, right? 
and the hospital network and the well, and everything the, in place. Yeah, the yeah. neighborhood network, the hospital network, all of the networks. Yeah, yeah, I mean, to me, it seems like if you think about an ecosystem, and the work that you're doing sounds so relational in that the Be a Buddy system, you, you're you're organizing different groups within the New York City government. There's a com- that community of communities. You're coordinating with other cities. There's that community of communities. So it sounds like so much, there's a real thread that's running through all of that about, about building community and an ecosystem that is resilient in its very diversity and it's all of its nodes of connection. Great. No, that, that's right. And, and I think that <laughs> there's a bureaucratic ecosystem here too because we also need the city government to work with the state government to work with the federal government on all of these issues uh-huh. right. um, because everyone has their own role to play. Right. I mean, it's so interesting kind of coming from federal government to city government because... You know, I, I thought I really understood these issues and I realized I knew nothing about how it works at the local level when I got to the city government. Oh, really? Mm. Well, it's where the rubber meets the road. And, like, it's much more about implementation. And at the federal level, it's much more about policy, right? And, and everyone has a role to play. Um, we need the private sector to be acting in this space as well. But for example, how do you... We're implementing a multi-layered approach to resiliency in New York City, right? So we've got 520 miles of coastline. We're strengthening our coast. But we're also upgrading buildings, meaning... Like we're trying to build the more res- most resilient building code um, in any city in the country and making sure that we're taking climate change into account for, for all new buildings and substantial rehab. We want to retrofit buildings and create access to financing for homeowners to do that. Um, we are um, hardening our infrastructure, our energy, wastewater, sewer, water systems, telecommunications, transportation, and then we're providing residents and businesses, small businesses, with information that they can use to make smart decisions in the face of climate change, right? So that's our multi-layered approach. But I think like on the buildings front in particular, retrofitting buildings, we have a million buildings in New York City. Um, How do you retrofit attached homes? How do you retrofit multifamily buildings? Like, it's not easy, right? And so I think that there is a bit of an innovation gap here, right? And, And like when I worked in the Obama administration, we were very focused on getting money to states and cities to do this work, but I actually think that there need to be investments in R&D related to resilience because I think there's a there's sort of a gap in terms of the you know the strategy, strategies and technologies we have and the problems we're facing. So we want to make sure that we're we're really putting the best minds to work there. Um, I think the Climate Solutions Center on Governor's Island is going to be really exciting. You know, I've seen um, uh, I. Uh, have visited the Netherlands to learn about what they're doing. Um, you know, there's this uh, kind of pseudo-governmental organization called Deltaris. They actually have, uh, it's kind of like a laboratory for resilience technologies, right? They actually have this thing that they call a wave flume where they can, they can create life-size storm surge and like test things like the ability of mangroves to withstand that storm surge. We don't have Wait, any- life-size? Yeah. Wow. And, and we don't have anything like that in the United States, right? Like, I would love to see us, like, repurpose our national laboratories to, to like, be resilience hubs or labs of that kind, right? And so I think, um, let's stop. Um, I, I would love to see that kind of engagement um, and, and that kind of, like, sort of leaning into R&D. And I think the private sector definitely has a role to play. And I really do see, like, at a local level, Governor's Island starting to become that, which is really exciting. We still have a ways to go. But... Um, but I would love to see that at a national scale. Um, you know, the financial sector has such an important role to play. Um, you know, we've seen the rating, the credit rating agencies like Moody's um, uh, say that, you know, they're going to take climate resiliency planning into account um, in municipal bond ratings, which is so great. Like, it's such an, a, an important step in the right direction. But I think that there needs to be more... Um, more development there and and how that assessment's done. Um, And I think that, you know, that can then bleed into lending of all kinds, you know, uh, mortgage financing. Like, it would be great to start seeing climate resiliency being taken into account or climate risk being taken into account um, in the financial services sector more generally. It's so interesting. Like, you don't think climate change bond rating, right? Like, there's so many of these places where you've been talking about, like, just unexpected uh, levers to pull. Right. It's about creating the incentives, right? Yeah, Incentives for action. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm wondering, you, know, you, see, you talked about coast, you talked about heat. Are there other um, sort of major uh, programs that, that you're, you're working on right now? Precipitation. Yeah, um, I mean, we're working on um, the city's first stormwater maps. Um, so they'll be the first, the city's first maps that will show precipitation risk. Um, and like I said before, you know, I think that what's going to be um, unique about these maps, they're, they're another kind of flooding map, but, um, but they will impact inland communities, not just coastal communities. So we actually recommend that everyone in New York City get flood insurance. Um, if you're not in a high risk zone, then it's usually not a very big cost, just $500 a year um, but everyone's susceptible to flood risk of one kind or another right and um, and so um, the the precipitation maps will will depict um, in that inland flood risk and it'll also I think help us start thinking about a, a unique set of strategies that's not about coastal barriers or raising edges but rather about drainage and land use how do we create green spaces that can be retention areas when there's a big storm but then like you know can be open in green space when during dry days, right? Like th those kinds of things. We want to start really employing those kinds of strategies to um, address precipitation risk, which of course is its its own thing. So I'm curious, what, what drew you to this work personally? Yeah, um, well, I... You know, when I graduated from college, I was really interested in youth development. I had um, worked with a range of nonprofit organizations that were working with teenagers and trying to get them more civically involved, and I was excited about that. And then I ended up um, uh, going to India on a fellowship um, where I thought I was going to be working with youth. Um, and my family's from India. I um, had visited India many times growing up, um, but I ended up in a community that was... Um, that I'd never been to before in Orissa. It's on the Bay of Bengal. And it, it, it's, Orissa is actually one of the poorest states in India. So it was quite a different, sort of my, my experience there was quite different from my experience in other parts of India. Um, and this is a community that was hit by a super cyclone five years before I got there that had killed 10,000 people and washed away entire villages. And um, the concept of adolescence didn't really even exist in this community. Um, it was at least in the communities that I was working in, it was mostly, I was working mostly in communities below the poverty line and child marriage was quite prevalent. So kids were getting married off at the ages of 10 or 12 and, you know, went straight from being kids to being adults. So anyway, I was trying to figure out like how I could be useful in this context, like what I could work on during my time there. And I ended up supporting this, um, advocacy campaign for childcare centers and communities below the poverty line. And I was interviewing working mothers and putting cameras in the hands of what we called sibling caretakers. So usually girls the ages of five, six, seven that were really sacrificing any chance of an education in order to take care of their younger brothers and sisters while their parents went off to work. But when I was interviewing working mothers, I would always ask at the end of the interview, what else do you want to say? You know, like what, what else do you want people to know? And they would always talk about the fact that they were still actively recovering from the storm that happened five years before I even got there. And it just made me realize, you know, I was so interested in, in supporting um, uh, socioeconomically vulnerable communities, but I, 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 I realized that those communities were often also the most environmentally vulnerable. And that didn't become clear to me in my journey until I got there. Um, and so it, it wanted, it, it forced me, it made me want to take a, a more kind of holistic approach to community development rather than thinking about youth development in a silo. I wanted to um, go to school and, and, and take a more holistic approach to community development. And then on the first day of uh, my urban planning program, Katrina made landfall in uh, Louisiana. Oh, wow. And suddenly all the issues that I had gone to grad school to um, uh, become better equipped to tackle were playing out in my own country. Um, and so, you know, I, I convinced my dean to let me enroll remotely and I moved to New Orleans and um, uh, spent the better part of the next four years there um, working to fight for an equitable recovery in the Gulf Coast. Um, and I've never really looked back since then. You know, I, I don't think I even knew at the time that I was starting a career trajectory in climate resilience. Um, I, those terms weren't even quite socialized at the time. The field was still very much emerging, and I would say it's still kind of emerging. Um, but one thing's led to another, and I've just continued on a path to really um, uh, work with communities in, in one capacity or another to better prepare for the impacts of climate change and do, do that with equity um, at the heart. Mm -hmm.
Um, so it's springtime, and um, I noticed there's some, even some daffodils coming up in this vacant lot. There must have been a house here, and someone planted those daffodils. What, what's coming up for you? What, what, what are these new, new shoots of growth that are coming up for you? Yeah. Um, well, we, yesterday was Earth Day, and we actually released the city's first state of climate knowledge report. We actually undertook this process of talking, like we had a set of structured dialogues about what we know, what we don't know, and what we need to know about climate change with not only our partners in government and the scient and scientific community, but also residents of New York City and environmental justice organizations. Um, and we compiled all of that into our first public research agenda for climate science in New York City. Um, and it's really exciting because I'm hoping that we can facilitate some really creative and interesting partnerships between academics and environmental justice organizations and community-based organizations about how we make sure that the information that um, we're producing is is useful and applicable and um, you know and, and 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 can be translated to the people who need it the most the most impacted communities people really need to better understand how climate change is going to impact their day-to-day -day lives like that's that's a research need right and so you know we think about climate science sometimes like as a very technical thing but it's just one example of how we're taking this technical information but again like bringing equity at the center and engaging all parts of our city ecosystem um, and, and really making sure that it's usable and, and, and can be um, used by the by the people um, who are most impacted. Yeah, not just sit in a report somewhere that exactly that, that you know only other scientists are going to read. Right, right, yeah. And how is engagement going? Like in communities that might not be the most powerful normally, are they engaging with you? Are they kind of doing I, the vision thing? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, we, you know, I, I think we still, like, there's a lot more engagement to do, right? But um, but we're, in the communities that we have engaged, we um, are getting great response. Um, people are certainly coming to the table. Um, I, I would say that one of the biggest assets that I have in my job is that we have such an engaged constituency and people, New Yorkers, are demanding action on these issues. Um, and it's such, the reason I call it the greatest asset is that, um, you know, these issues, climate change can seem really long term to, um, you know, g government decision makers who are dealing with like, name your fire drill of the day, right? Like they're dealing with so many immediate problems and especially now, like in the middle of a pandemic and an economic crisis, there have been so many immediate challenges to deal with. So, um, uh, the, the, the stuff I work on can often get put on the back burner, right? But, um, but I would say that communities have helped us keep this issue very much on the front burner in New York City because they know that we need to act with urgency. They know they're feeling the impacts now and they're pushing city government to um, to rise to that challenge. Um, and so, um, yeah, we're, we're seeing great engagement across the board and um, we, we need to just continue that momentum. There's so many incredible programs that you're working on. And as you just mentioned, during a pandemic, how do you think about your own personal resiliency? Yeah, I've been thinking about this question. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how to answer this. I, I really, I just like deep down, like feel in my bones the imperative to do this work, right? Like I, I like really feel that this work is so important. And there have been so many times in my career, moments in my career where I've said, okay, like sh should I walk away from this and do something different? And I've just like at those junctures, I've always made the decision to stick with this work. Um, and so I think like I just, I, I sort of live and breathe the mandate. I have a two-year-old now um, and, you know, I think that, um, the mandate becomes even stronger um, as I think about the next generation. Um, I want to make sure that wherever she ends up living is livable, right? It, like she can stay safe and resilient um, where wherever her future leads her. Um, and that means making the investments and taking the action now. Um, and yeah, I just have an amazing family and I think they contribute a lot to my personal resiliency. What does success look like 
you know, 10 years from now? It's a hard question. Um, you know, I, 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 I think it's important for people to realize, I always say that resilience is a process and not an outcome. Um, and I think it's important for people to realize that we're gonna, there's not gonna be an end point, right? Like there's, we're gonna have to continue really evaluating how we're doing and, and continue progress on, evaluating how we're doing, evaluating the risks that we face and then continue advancing the work of building a more resilient city. But, but like when people ask me, what can they do to make a difference? I always say every time you hear your government officials talking about any decision that the government's making, whether it is um, housing, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's land use, ask how they're taking climate change into account, right? Mm. And I think we need to get to that point of like, everything we do has to take climate change into account. Um, and uh, I think we're making great progress on that front in New York City. Um, for I, I think there's still sort of this feeling that um, in city government, that that you know the the, the resilience office does, prepares the city for climate change, um, and the parks department, their core mission is to a stewardship of our park system, right? The transportation department is their core mission is to um, take care of our streets and our bridges and our roads and 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 maintain them and operate them. But all, like every every agency also needs to be a climate change agency. Right? Every agency needs to be a climate change agency along with whatever their core mission is um, and, and an acknowledgement that climate change really affects everything so, that we so do. not just creatively, but interdisciplinarily. Exactly. That's right. In the interest of, you know, sounding the alarm, hearing that siren, like, what is, if we don't do this, then... Like, what should people be afraid of if we, if we don't get this right? Well, we won't be able to... It won't be up to us to figure out how we're going to adapt to climate change. Mother Nature will decide for us. We'll see con continual flooding. We'll see repetitive losses, right? We'll see the same homes being flooded over and over again. We'll see the same neighborhoods being flooded over and over again. And at some point, like, we won't be able to... There will be limits on how much government can invest in rebuilding, right? And so it won't be us proactively saying, okay, these communities need to move. Where should they move? How should they move? How do we do this equitably? Some of that stuff will just happen in reaction to one disaster after another. Um, and, um, and, and that's kind of actually the best case scenario. I think like the worst case scenario is that people will die, right? Like people will die if we don't, if we don't take proactive action. Thanks for listening to Wild Talk. This episode was produced and edited by Matt Dellinger and Jay Erickson. Visit our website, wildtalkpodcast.com, to see photos from each episode, related links, and more information about our guests. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to rate, review, and share with friends. Be well, and we'll see you out there. <laughs>